I think we're to proclaim the truth of the text. We're to proclaim the Jesus of the text. <laughs> uh, we're to teach what this text is all about. We are to then articulate any application that the text might have. But if the text does not have an application, or better, if the text does not have an exhortation, then the preacher must not give an exhortation. This is Matt Woodley with Monday Morning Preacher, a ministry of preachingtoday.com at Christianity Today. And I am here today with a very special guest of mine, a man named Dr. Daryl Johnson. And let me introduce you folks to this guy because uh, Daryl and I have known each other for about four years now and been able to hang a lot, out a lot. And so Daryl's been in pastoral ministry for over 50 years, five zero years, right, Daryl? Right. <laughs> He's been in the ministered in the U.S., the Philippines, Canada. Right now he lives in Vancouver, and he's been a pastor, professor. He's preached in over 18 countries. He's written 10 books. He's frequently contributed to preaching today, and he has a wife, 11 children, four children adopted from around the world, and we're friends, and we're friends of Jesus, Daryl reminded me. So great to have you, Daryl. Thank you, Matt. It's always good to be with you. You're such a good brother. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, we met, I actually wrote an article on one of your sermons and you read it and you reached out to me and contacted me and you said that I I get this, I get you. That's right. That's right. Here's someone who knows what at least this one preacher is trying to do. It was, it was brilliant. Huh. And you made me look good. So <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have to do much. And so I drove, I got on a train and well, not right away, but I got on a train and Took it from Chicago all the way to Seattle and a bus from Seattle to Vancouver. And we got together and hung out and had lunch together in Vancouver. It was worth the trip, Daryl. Oh, bless you. And then we've had many times on Zoom since. So. Yeah, we have. And I always enjoy our conversations about preaching. I always come away really enriched. So I read an article uh, you wrote a while ago, and you talked about the story of your first official sermon, you called it, was, was delivered in July of 1970 while you were a seminary intern. And how did it go? Uh, it did not go well. We like least. to hear this. We like to hear these stories. <laughs> the text I was given was Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. And you know that's one long sentence in the Greek, one deliciously, glorious, wonderfully, beautifully crafted sentence celebrating the every spiritual blessings that we have in Christ in the heavenly places. So I was to do a 25-minute sermon on that. I entitled it Jesus and the Age of Aquarius. <laughs> I was trying to be hip and cool and yeah. connect with the, with the contemporary culture. That's when there was that song. This is the dawning of the Age of Aquarius. And oh, my goodness, it was a clumsy sermon. I was supposed to be 25 minutes. Saturday evening, I practiced it, read it out loud, and it was 40. Uh-oh. Both times I practiced, I did as much editing as I knew how to do at that time. And I, I couldn't get it down. And I just, oh, Lord, what am I supposed to do? So I just concluded that on Sunday morning, I will just speak as fast as I can and get those 40 <laughs> minutes into 25 minutes. And I just plowed through that sermon. Oh, oh, mercy. I thought, oh, oh my goodness. But great, God was gracious. And there were enough people in the church who recognized there was gifting beneath all that clumsiness and don't give up, keep going. That's a good lesson for all of us. That's great. 
So, Daryl, this is our fourth season of Monday Morning Preacher Podcast, and we've never addressed a very basic question. What is preaching? And I know you've, you, you've written a book called The Glory of Preaching. Best you can in a minute or two, tell us what is preaching? Well, as you know, there are many really well-crafted definitions, and we could list the different uh, preaching coaches who give those definitions, and I've worked with them. There are many different biblical verbs that are used for the preaching moment, like proclaim or herald, hear ye, hear ye, evangelize, I have good news for you, teach, exhort, bear witness, persuade, a lot of different verbs that are involved in preaching. So in anticipation for this, I thought I'll, I'll get as basic as I know how to get. Okay, good. It's, it's not very fancy. This is going to be real basic. And here it goes. It's one sentence. It's complex sentence, but I think we can follow. I'll repeat it if we need to. Preaching is a human being standing before other human beings, Bible in hand, opening the Bible to a text, and in radical dependence on the Spirit of God, saying as best he or she can, in the language and thought forms of the people, what the living God is saying in the text. Wow. Wow. Should I say it again? Yes, please say that again. That was really rich. Preaching is a human being standing before other human beings, Bible in hand, opening the Bible to a text, and in radical dependence on the Spirit of God, saying as best he or she can, in the language and thought forms of the people, what the living God is saying in the text. Wow. I have a couple follow-up questions. You know, I know in um, an article I read from you, I think it was talking about 30, after 30 years of preaching, or maybe 40 years of preaching. I can't remember what it was. But you talked about a mentor of yours that pressed you to ask the question, have I gotten the text right? Tell us the story behind that. That was the Daniel Fuller. When I studied at Fuller Seminary, I began in the fall of 1969, and he was professor of hermeneutics and Bible. And he just stressed that. He's the one who taught us how to sentence diagram so that we could pay attention to every little detail in the text. And that the goal of a sermon on a text was to be able to say the main point of that text. He worked with the assumption, which I still hold, that there's going to be one main point and all the other parts of the text relate to it either as support or consequences. So main text. So ever since then, on Saturday night, I can hear him on my left shoulder. Do you have the main point of this text? And is that what you're preaching? On my right shoulder, I have uh, James Dane, who was our homiletics professor. And his emphasis was, are you trusting your personality or the Holy Spirit? <laughs> well, those two mentors have haunted me <laughs> all of these years. Do you have the main point of the author? And who are you trusting? You, your skill, your personality, or the Spirit? That's why in that definition I wrote, in radical dependence on the Spirit of God. Yeah, that's great. And yet you start that definition with a human being before other human beings. So uh, unpack that for us. That's very human-centered in a way, but, it, but preaching is. So tell us about that. Well, preaching hopefully isn't human-centered, but it's yeah. certainly human, uh, 
uh, it's centered in humans. Yeah, <laughs> twist that around. The reason I have that part of the definition is we are, we are by human being, I was meaning finite and broken. Mm-hmm. So I could have added those phrases. A preaching is a finite, broken human being standing before other finite, broken human beings. Hmm. So it's a very human exercise centered in Christ in the revelation of the living God. Yep, that's really helpful. So in your book, The Glory of Preaching, I think of this often. Every time I'm doing a sermon or every time I'm coaching other preachers or talking about preaching, uh, you use the image of the, the preacher as a guide. And here's what you write in The Glory of Preaching and I'll quote it for our people, the preacher's role is not that of an expert, but that of a guide, as at an art exposition, or as the leader of an expedition, pointing to, calling attention to the essential aspects of the reality about what the text is speaking. Okay, so this image of the guide at an art exposition or a leader of an expedition, unpack that for us. I've written more on that since writing The Glory of Preaching. Actually, I probably ought to make a smaller book out of it. And what I'm, what I'm doing is working with the image of a particular text as a room. Hmm. I believe, and I know you would and our listeners would, the Bible is speaking about reality as it really is. Reality as it really is. Through the Bible, the Spirit of God who inspired the human authors of the Bible the Spirit is opening up for us reality as it really is. More specifically, reality as it was intended to be, reality as it has fallen to be, reality as it is in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and reality as it will one day be when he comes. So that's what I mean by reality as it is. And then I look at each individual book of the Bible as one of the multitude of rooms in this reality as it really is. And then every text within that particular book of the Bible is a room into reality as it really is. Now, I think then that the job or task or call of the preacher is to enter into that room and become so familiar with that room, as familiar as possible. And then on the Lord's Day to invite believers and not yet believers to join us in the room. Hmm. I chose those words carefully to invite others to join us in the room. Now, I think what most preaching has been, these are a generalization, but most preaching has been that the preacher goes into the room during the week, gets a message from the room, then on the Lord's Day, downloads the message on the people. And that's signaled in the fact that a biblical text is read and then the Bible is closed. Hmm. And then we go to this message. And what I'm suggesting is the preacher never leaves the room. Hmm. He or she has gone into the room during the week, never leaves it. And now on the Lord's Day, invites people into the room. That's why you've heard in my introductions to my sermons. This morning, I'm inviting you into a little parable. I'm being very intentional with that verb. So the preacher now invites people into the room and then, as best as she or he can do, helps people understand where they're standing or sitting or kneeling yeah. depending upon what, how they're grasping the room. So like an analogy would be if I were a realtor 
and I had gone into a room and I'm going to get you to buy this, this room, I would say, notice this painting on the wall? It was given by, da, 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 da. or notice the four windows on the four walls. Have you taken the time? Notice that they are actually designed because they are part of a set. Or notice how the furniture is arranged. You can rearrange it any way you want, but this furniture has been deliberately rearranged in a way that stands out against its neighborhood. On and on and on it would go. So um, we enter this room and we ask, why is this room the way it is? And it is because Jesus is in the room and he's moving, he's working in the room. And we ask questions like, notice how he's interacting with all the other people that's in the room. Notice what he's doing. He likes to work a lot and on and on it goes. So I'm suggesting the preacher has entered the room. You're getting to know that room as best as you can. You're inviting the people to enter the room with you, help them understand where they are as best as they can. And then here's the, here's the clincher. The goal of preaching then is to help people enter the room so they never want to leave it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's good. That's what I think preaching a text is about. You've drawn people into that so much they never want to leave it. And I've shared this analogy with some people. I don't do it publicly, but I've done it with us leaders at churches I've served. <laughs> it's really fun how people, you know, greet you on the steps before the sanctuary and say, I can hardly wait to enter that room. And then when they greet me in the line afterwards, I'm never going to leave it. Never. I don't want to live anywhere else. I want to live in this room. That is, that is great. I mean, once you enter Philippians 2, 5 to 11, do you ever want to leave that space? No. Or John 13, where Jesus is washing your disciples. Anyway, on and on it goes. Now, the goal is so they don't want to leave this room so that then they go through the coming week still living in the reality they experienced in that room. We are a guide or a docent. Uh, we're helping people understand where we brought them. That's a great analogy. And that I think that leads into how you view sermon application which you, you call walking the sermon into everyday life. You have a chapter on that in your book. And I would say your approach to sermon application is maybe not the dominant view in evangelical preaching, how we view application. So what advice do you give preachers about sermon application? Very good question. And this is where I would love to interact with you and would love to be able to interact with the listeners more. I prefer the word implication. Hmm. Mm -hmm. versus application. I, I don't, and I'm not just playing with words. I think implication implies inherent consequences. Application can be something forced. And in my experience, as I grew up, I felt a lot of the application was forced on the text. So what I want to do is be in this, in the room and if you're in that room, you do not need to be told what to do. Just being in the room calls forth new desires. It awakens new desires and it calls forth new behaviors. And if you're alert to the reality of the room, you know what you're supposed to do about this. You don't need to be told. So I don't think applying is our job <laughs> unless the Holy Spirit tells you or unless the text itself has a direct application. I think we're to proclaim the truth of the text. We're to proclaim the Jesus of the text. <laughs> we're to teach what this text is all about. We are to then 
articulate any application that the text might have. But if the text does not have an application, or better, if the text does not have an exhortation, then the preacher must not give an exhortation. I think it's wrong to try to apply it because the text never intended you to do that. The text intended you to encounter Jesus in such a way that it will be, it'll just naturally overflow. Now, if the text does then say something to do, then I need to say that to be faithful to that text. But what the text says to do will be grounded in the Jesus of the text. And then the listener is able to do what the text says to do because they're grounded in Jesus who empowers to do this. After I left Fuller Seminary, I don't know how many years later, Fuller called Ian Pitt Watson, who has some marvelous books on preaching from Scotland to come and be the preaching professor, stem winding communicator. And so the Presbyterian churches of Southern California were anxious to get Ian Pitt Watson to come and preach. And he said, I won't preach in any church for six months until I have visited the Presbyterian churches in the area, because he was a Presbyterian. (laughs) In this convocation, he said, after six months, I can summarize the preaching that I've heard in the Presbyterian churches in one sentence. We're we're listening with bated breath. (laughs) I summarized, this is the preaching I heard. It is good to be good. It is nice to be nice. And he said, I never heard news Ah. about what God has done, is doing, and will do in Jesus Christ. I was just told what to do. And from that, I guess the Lord gave me this mantra then, good advice changes no one. Hmm. Good news changes you. And any good advice you give has to be grounded in the good news. And not every text has good advice. But every text is going to have good news. Yeah. That's what changes people's lives. Now, in the good news text, if there is a good advice piece, preach it. But it's grounded in good news. Is that making sense? Absolutely. Everything's grounded in good news. You talk about that very clearly, I think, in your your chapter on what is preaching in your book, The Glory of Preaching. You talk a lot about that. There is good news in every text. Every text. So let's go back to the analogy of the room. I need to stay in that room long enough until I get the news. What's the news? What's driving the truth of this text? It's the character of Jesus as revealed in the room, and then this news that he announces. And once I know the news, then that shapes and that tweaks my worldview in a new way that awakens new desires and that engenders new behaviors. Some I will have to articulate the new behavior if the text does, but otherwise that's not my job. So I would want to say to the sisters and brothers listening, I want to lift off your shoulders the weight of having to apply the text. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And you you can articulate exhortations if they're there, but if they're not there, you don't have to. In fact, you should not. Okay, that does take a lot of pressure off. I hope so. Yeah. But inherent implications is, I see what you're saying with that. That's a little different than what we normally think of as forced, especially forced applications. Correct. You could turn to a person and say, so. And they would know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the implications could simply be, I must bow before such a Lord. 
that's the only application. Or, my goodness, I didn't realize holiness was this powerful. I must repent. Wow. And I'll say, that's right. That's the right implication. Yeah. Or, I've got too much going on in my life. I've got to run from this. I'll go, wrong implication, but I understand why you're doing that. Uh (laughs) Then I might say, no, no, come on back. Stay here until you get the right implication. You know, another thing you talk about in your book that really struck me that I haven't read a lot about elsewhere is what you call ordering the sermon for orality, that the sermon is a spoken form of communication for the ear. Tell us what you've learned and what you teach preachers about that. And what I'm still learning, I write out the manuscript. Not everybody does. I do. I think you do. You write a manuscript. You may not use it, but. Right. Pretty close. Yeah. I write out a manuscript. Now, the inherent orientation of writing is for the eye. And so we can write these beautifully crafted sentences with support clauses and result clauses. They're just beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> right? They're beautiful yes. to the eye, but they're only beautiful to the eye. The ear doesn't grasp that beauty. So what I've had to do over the years, it's getting easier and easier, but I will write during the week. Usually my the manuscript's done by noon on Friday. That's the goal. Saturday morning then, I read it out loud and I realize, whoa, all these beautiful sentences are not going to be heard. So I have to go back with my pencil and break them down into shorter sentences, Mm -hmm. et cetera. I don't like that process. It would be ideal. Some preachers I know can write for the ear on paper. They just get that. I'm starting to get it, but it's still hard for me. So the process of then going from something composed for the eye to something composed for the ear and shorter sentences repetition. Hence, I had to repeat that definition of preaching. If it was on a screen, I wouldn't have had to. Right. But there's a point there. You wouldn't have got it unless you had heard my tone as I read. Right. So even that was for the ear. So repetition, less sophisticated words, you know, the really nice words that we pick. Oh, no, we have to find an easier word. I always thought of my grandmother and my youngest daughter at the time. How does this connect with them? More pithy images, developing a cadence because the ear needs to hear that. And then there needs to be some kind of flow that the ear can follow. I know uh, in the contemporary world, we feel odious about three-point sermons. (laughs) One, two, three. I'm here to say the parishioners don't mind that. Yeah. In fact, they need it. They need some kind of hanger on which to hang all the things we're saying. And if we have a clear order, we can actually say more. If we don't have any order, it doesn't matter how much we say, it's, it's not going to connect. So we have to have it ordered in such a way. The simplest is one, two, three, or, or more. Now, I'll go on in here. If you do use one, two, three, you have to make sure that when you get to number two, you say two. Mm. If you skip and don't use the word two, you get to now my third point, and the and the listener goes, uh, I didn't hear the second. And now they're going to spend all this time going back, trying to listen, where was the second point, and not hear what you're saying about the third point. Right. So if you do use that kind of order, you have to stick with it. 
there needs to be some indication that you've moved to a new theme. I'll say one more thing about these numbers. Let's say you have a three-point sermon, first, second, third. And in your, you're in your second point, and you're developing a truth, and you say, now, Paul develops this in three ways. No. Now the ear's confused. You said my first point, my second point. Under my second point, I've got three more. Ah. And the, the ear is going to hear, are we on the third? Or where are we? So I avoid the one, two, three under the two. <laughs> yes. Instead, you would say something like, now, Paul helps us see that this works itself out in a number of ways. For instance, da 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 And also, da 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 And da 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 You're giving the ear indications you're moving on, but you're not messing up the hearing where they're confused yes. about where you are in the flow. And then for oral communication, I think we need to end and end. There's a temptation to go on, to elaborate, to try to make one more application. And the ear, I'd have to do more research on this, but I, the ear knows when the sermon's over. <laughs> mm -hmm. It knows. And people shut down. So as I read it out loud on Saturday, then I go, oh, wait a minute. I don't need those two pages. That was from my eye. Oh, the eye loves qualifications and nuancing, <laughs> right? Yes. You're disappointed when you get to the end of the chapter. Right. Uh, when you're reading, but not when you're listening. We're done. That's it. You got to know when to stick the landing. Uh, we've used the image before of a, of a gymnast that goes off from the vault or the horse, you know, and, and she lands and puts her arms out and boom, she's done, done. you know? But the, so the ear longs for that kind of like, okay, let's, you're done. We're done. Yeah. Um, don't keep hopping forever. Yeah. Hopefully they want more. Can't always count on that, but they do know when it's over. Now there's a man named Robert Jacks. Uh, I'm going to turn my body around to the title. He's got two books uh, on this and he, he takes yeah. sermons, written sermons, and then rewrites them for the ear. Oh, wow. It's really, really helpful. This has really helped me as well. I really, I've been working really hard on writing for the ear the last few years. I think it, re it really helps my people just to just listen better. It's a yes, service yes. to them. Yes, yeah. you've got to help the ear here. And there's simple tricks. Back to repetition. We as the communicator can find the repetition as a little much, but the listener doesn't. The listener needs that repetition. And a PowerPoint is not enough. We've got to hear it again. Well, you know, Billy Graham was asked, what are the three great principles of preaching? He said, the first is repeat, the second is repeat, and the third is repeat. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's what I mean by moving the sermon from written to orality. Well, I got one more question for you. So I know you've been mentoring a lot of younger preachers these days, and I know you've You've been a professor of pastoral theology and taught a lot of preaching classes, written books on preaching. You've traveled the world preaching God's word. So as you look out at the landscape right now, what we're seeing right now, what words of encouragement or challenge would you give for preachers for today? A good question. A number. Is that okay? Sure. sure. And I won't give numbers to them. <laughs> okay. okay. I'll just say them. Trust the Bible. Simply reading a text and reading it well has power. 
to change people's lives. I've seen that when I preached on the Sermon on the Mount. The first Sunday on that text was simply me preaching the Sermon on the Mount, walking around the room, doing it from memory. Hmm. When I did the book of Philippians, the first sermon was me just reciting Philippians. And people talk about those events still. They sort of remember what I did with the exposition later on. Immersing in the room, in the text itself. So trust the text. Give a lot of time to preparing to, re to reading the text. And that will do more than we can measure. Preach good news before good advice. <laughs> preach good and, and preach good news by preaching specific texts. There's no way any of us can preach the whole gospel every time. So just preach the gospel of the specific text in front of you, and that will be enough. Make sure that the sermon leads to Jesus. Jesus himself says every text of scripture leads to him. I know I've been faithful to him when it ends there, when it, le when it leads people to there. Leave people trusting the Jesus of the text to make the good news of the text work. My exhortation would be, do not have people leave the sanctuary with the weight on their own shoulders to make this happen. The weight belongs on Jesus. So leave people trusting him. And I guess the last exhortation would be, all of this happens the more the preacher loves the Jesus of the text. Hmm. So stay in the room and until the love is alive. That's what people feel. That's what they sense in the preacher. If the preacher is in love with the Jesus of the text, they'll come with you. It's contagious. They'll come with you, and they'll do hard work with you. Now, what do you do when your love is cold? <laughs> that's another matter, but that's where we ask the Holy Spirit just to give us his passion for Jesus so that we are alive in that love relationship. So those would be some of the yeah. exhortations I would give. Well, and that's the thing that first drew me to your preaching is that you constantly have this childlike wonder in the text and in the Lord of the text. And it's kind of like you're going, what? Look at this. Did you <laughs> look at this? It's like, this is amazing, folks. This is, look at this. Look at Jesus. Look at our Lord. Look at the living God. You know, you're, you're always kind of exclaiming as you're walking and exegeting the text and you have this really profound heart connection to the text and you lead us into the presence of the living lord you know so your preaching really does that so thank you for your ministry of preaching thank you well i've been talking to dr daryl johnson from vancouver british columbia daryl thanks for being our guest on monday morning preacher oh my joy thank you for the honor thanks for joining us on this episode this is matt woodley with preaching today